You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. What a weekend it was. A poignant one off the field of play as we remember those who lost their lives 100 years ago on Bloody Sunday. And then on the field, what drama. Tipperary and Cavan turned the 2020 Championship on its head. Tipperary beat Cork by three points. They're Munster champions for the first time in 85 years and Cavan beat Donegal by four points, their first provincial title in 1997. So if you get out the calculators this morning, you put them together, that's 108 years of waiting for glory ended in one afternoon. That wasn't bad going, was it? Now, I mentioned Bloody Sunday, and as fate would have it, we now have the same All-Ireland semi-finalists as we had for the 1920 season. Dublin, Cavan, Mayo and Tipperary and for the record Tipperary won that title when that final was played. If you missed it all, here's a little snapshot of how the day unfolded on Radio 1. Tip in their commemorative green and white jerseys and it's all over in Parky Cueve. Tipperary are the Munster football champions for 2020. They have beaten Cork, their first title for 85 years and it arrives on the weekend that we mark the centenary of Bloody Sunday. Lofted in again, Patton goes up and he does well but the back of the ball is in the back of the net. Finished to the net, wonderful goal for Cavan as that ball broke in there and finished to the net. It is all over here at the Athletic Grounds and Cavan have beaten Johnny Gall. Would you believe it, Aidan? Absolutely amazing performance from Cavan. Nobody, virtually nobody, give them a chance going into this game. I think what won the day was just sheer determination, guts, and belief won the day, Owen. What this means to Cavan, Owen, I can't explain it. You know, it's just huge. Huge day, 85 years waiting. I'm ready to cry, to be honest with you, because it's massive. And you want to see primary school children wanting to play football for TIFF for the next 20, 30 years. That's what it's about. Liam Lennon from the Munster Council gives Connor Sweeney the signal to raise the Munster Trophy above his head. We haven't seen a tip man do this since 1935. It gives me great pride to represent the people of Tipperary, not just the players, but everyone else involved. Up tip. Oh, what a day. What a day in the world of sport. Now, we visited Cavan earlier in the programme, but let's go to Tipperary now. I'm thrilled to say I'm joined by the Tipperary manager, David Power. David, I understand you didn't even get a lion this morning. No, no, I didn't, Darren. I didn't, I didn't. But um, I'm still not tired, so it's great. It's great. It's absolutely great. I know you have a, a young man, Dara, there. Got you up nice nice and early. In terms <laughs> <It> of... <is. laughs> in terms of putting it into context, I, I, I don't know if it's sunk in or not, David. Are you able to put into words what it means? Just listening back to that, it's very emotional, to be honest with you. It's, um, we've, we've a wonderful group of players and... I suppose this has been going back, I suppose, the last 15 years, going back to the Brian Foxes when he was getting to minor finals and under-21 finals. And it's been a nice build-up. And, you know, yesterday was about, you know, you know, there's been a lot of talk about Tipperary being really, really good at underage. And today, yesterday was about winning that senior title to show that that, that, that we can compete against the best. And, that, and that's certainly what we did. Well, it certainly played into your hands the whole knockout championship and not having a second chance. Is this something maybe that we need to have a talk about to bring back the old ways of doing things. Yeah, yeah, well, I suppose it's easy for me to say that, but I suppose, look, um, that's for, for Crow Park, I suppose, to look at, and um, I think it's just been wonderful, um, the joy that it's given. I think it's, it's, it's an absolute privilege for us to be still able to do something and give that joy back to the people, because I know every Monday and Tuesday for the last five, six weeks, it's been giving people something to talk about, and and I think that's wonderful, and um, you know, and it's something that we can be very, very proud of, and to be a part of it, and to be actually talking about Tipperary being in an All Ireland semi final in two weeks' time is just it's just wonderful. Yeah, it is. The downside, I guess, David, no supporters. Very hard to celebrate something like this, and the extended squad as well. They couldn't attend the game yesterday. How tough was that on them? It's very, very tough because we've 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 around forty players because we've a lot of young fellas there that that that's, that's, that we're trying to develop, and for them they're every bit as part of it. You know, it doesn't matter who it is. We've a backroom team. Some of our stats lads couldn't go to the match yesterday as well, so they were doing the stats from home. And it's very, very tough because I'm. It, it's not about any one individual with us. It's about the collective, and that's what it's about. So from that point of view, it is very, very tough. But. Look, I understand in many ways where where Crow Park are coming from as well, but it is very, very tough. And 
Um, don't know, but look, we just have to get on with it. And do you think it might open uh, up for a semi-final? Well, like, I suppose there's like a thing for a park, and I suppose, you know, I'd be hoping so. It'd be just wonderful to have all our panel there, to have all our backroom team there, because they, they deserve that day. Um, it's you know, like I know I'm talking here, but I'm only representing a great group of people, and that's what I'm doing. And it's just a fabulous day for Tipperary football. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if you heard him. Declan Brown was on the program earlier, just before the news at eight thirty. There, he's predicting a Cavan Tipperary final. How do you feel about that? <laughs> well, look, we're going to probably enjoy the next twenty-four hours. Just take it all in. We're going to be back training Wednesday night, and then, and then we can start looking forward to the Mayo game. But. There's, a, there's going to be a great belief there. There's going to be great confidence there. And, you know, the lads played so well up in Crow Park there four years ago between the Galway game and even the Mayo game, which could have could have went either way. So there's going to be that inner belief and we're going to just enjoy it and just embrace the thing as well. And I think it's, again, as I said, it is a privilege for us, you know, to be in this position and, you know, and hopefully we can represent the Tipperary people again like we did there yesterday. I'm sure you will. David, thanks a million for joining us. I know it wasn't easy to, to take the early call, but we really do appreciate you no coming problem. on the programme. Uh, David Power there, uh, well done to him. Well, let's talk about that light at the end of the tunnel, a COVID-19 vaccine. Our reporter, Fiekra Okyone, joins us now. And the big question, Fiekra, is who will get this vaccine first once it comes on stream? Yes, it's the question on everyone's lips and not just in Ireland. On each of the past three Mondays, different vaccines have been reported to have high initial success rates for treating COVID-19. But while the development is long overdue good news, it isn't the end of difficult decisions for officials. With a finite supply of vaccines available, governments around the world are being forced to prioritise who will receive the medicines first. And while it might be expected, older and more vulnerable people would be at the front of the queue, this isn't always the case. France is one country with a different approach. Here's Stephen Carroll, a Paris-based Irish journalist with France 24. What the initial recommendations have said is they have identified three priority groups that should get the vaccine first. The first is people who are at risk because of their work. That's 6.8 million people. It includes healthcare workers, which makes up uh, almost 2 million of those, but also teachers, people working in hospitality, meat plant workers, drivers, those who might be put at risk because of their professional environment. And it's after that that the experts are recommending the next group should be prioritised or those who are at risk because of their age or because of their health conditions. And the third group, much smaller, would be people from fragile risk groups, so those could be people who are homeless. I think the thinking here from the scientific advisors is perhaps that those people who are over 65 who might suffer more greatly from catching the illness would be able to limit their own exposure in a way that people who have to go out and work in risky environments can't. That's very interesting. Stephen Carroll there from France 24. So working in risky environments is France's biggest priority. Is that the same elsewhere, Fiacre? Well, no, and that's the problem that governments are trying trying to decide on what to do next are now facing. For example, our closest neighbours, England, uh, they disagree with France already on this issue. Uh, the UK's Joint Committee on Vaccine and Immunisation has conducted its own research into the issue, which it has given to British Prime Minister Boris Johnson in recent days. Now, Dr James McInerney is an epidemiologist and head of the University of Nottingham School of Life Sciences, and he says in Britain the biggest factor isn't a risky environment, it's age. So the UK government's approach to this has been to develop a prioritisation exercise and they've got a list of 11 priority groups that are going to get the, the vaccine in order and these are very, very much lined up by age, though with some, some slight modifications. And so the top group, for instance, are older adults that are resident in care homes and also the care home workers. After that, the priorities are over 75, 70, 65, but then after 65, high-risk adults that are under the age of 65, followed by moderate risk, and then younger ages. The UK system is pretty much determined by age and not by profession. And I think above all else, clarity really, really helps. That's Dr James McInerney there. So what about us here? Who and what is our priority, Fikra? 
Well, much like the virus itself, Ireland is not immune from having to grapple with these same competing issues. But we are, of course, working on a plan. So the government and NEFET have in recent days set up a new group. It's called the High Level Task Force on COVID-19 Vaccination to decide on who gets the vaccine first. This 12-person group is chaired by former DCU President Professor Brian McCrea and includes Chief Medical Officer Dr Tony Houlihan, HSE CEO Paul Reid and IDA Ireland CEO Martin Shanahan, among others. In a statement to Morning Ireland, the Department of the Taoiseach said the new group met for the first time on Monday to agree its terms of reference and will meet again next Monday after Neffet specifically discusses priority vaccine list issues. Now, group sources have also told me they have been asked to provide a priority list and a vaccine implementation plan to the coalition on or before December 11th. All of this, of course, bodes well for a speedy access to a vaccine for some people. But with EU deals meaning Ireland will initially only have enough medication for 1 million people here, it also means other people in Ireland will still have to wait for the help. As Professor Patricia Kearney, epidemiologist at UCC's School of Public Health, now explains. The first thing is that it's good news that these vaccines are being developed, but now we need to think about how a vaccination programme can be delivered. It is complicated and there are decisions that need to be made. And these really are societal decisions, but they will be informed by our understanding of the epidemiology of the disease. And depending on where we are at when the vaccination programme is being rolled out, we need to think about individuals who are at risk, and not only themselves of getting it, but then also of onward transmission. And, and then, you know, I know there's things like age, comorbidities, we need to consider all those factors. There are different risks, I suppose, that we need to weigh up here. Professor Patricia Kearney there from UCC School of Public Health. Fiacre, thank you very much indeed. Gardaí have met with senior RTE personnel as part of their inquiry into a retirement gathering at the station. They're seeking to establish whether the event breached COVID-19 regulations. A number of broadcasters and managers have apologised for their behaviour after they were photographed not practising social distancing or wearing a mask. The chair of the RTE board, meanwhile, Moya Doherty, described the gathering as a matter of serious concern. Our arts and media correspondent Sinead Crowley has been following developments. Sinead, talk to us first of all, if you would, about this Garda investigation. What's been happening? That's right. Well, it's an initial examination It's is how it's being described, um, not a full investigation yet. What's happening now is that the Gardaí have to decide, is this something that warrants further investigation? So they have met senior RTE personnel already. I understand that was on foot of a complaint and they then carry out this initial examination to see if COVID-19 regulations were breached. Um, the regulations or the legislation states that a person shouldn't organise or cause to be organised a social or recreational event unless it's outdoors. So it's got to do with the event and the organisation of it. Um, So if there was, for example, to be a further investigation or prosecutions, it would be the organiser or the organisers. Those who who attended wouldn't have committed an offence. But that's what they're doing. They're doing that initial investigation now to see if things should go any further. And the inquiries appear to be focused on finding out if the event was impromptu, because that was a word used by RTE initially um, in an initial statement or was, or was it organised so really that will make the difference there as to whether further action will be taken or not it's all about this decision to organise it and um, those investigations are continuing and RTE have already spoken to them and they've they've agreed to to answer further questions um, Emer Cusack who's the Director of Human Resources at RTE did an interview yesterday and she pointed out that those involved have apologised and she said that we all as she put it are extremely disappointed and frustrated with what had happened and she said there was a full health and safety review in progress that's in RTE and uh, she also pointed out that RTE have met uh, Garda Siakana in respect of the, this initial inquiry. Those involved have rightly apologised. We're disappointed and frustrated that this has happened. However, it's important that we look at what has occurred and learn from that. We have a full um, health and safety review which is now in progress. In addition, RTE representatives have met with the Garda Siakana earlier today in respect of their inquiry. Emer Cusack, the chair of the RTE board, Sinead, has also issued a statement. What does that say and what's their role in this? 
Yeah, so you've had a number of statements coming from RTE, you know, since since this first appeared in the papers and since the story first emerged. Obviously, you had people involved, had, had apologised and so on, and you had public apologies. But RTE also has a board which, you know, looks over the sort of general direction of the broadcaster and uh, its chair is Moya Doherty. And she issued a separate statement yesterday in which she said that the failure to adhere to proper social distancing was a matter of serious concern for the board. Um, she also said that there's an onus on everyone in RTE to be above reproach and lead by example and she said that she had asked for an update on the matter and that the board will address the matter at its meeting next week. There's also been a further apology from the Director of News and Current Affairs John Williams. That's right. John Williams was uh, delivering the John Cunningham Journalism Lecture to NUI Galway students last night. This was a a pre-arranged lecture that he was going to deliver on journalism and and the importance of journalism. So he did begin his lecture by pointing out that, you know, rather than reporting the news that RTE itself had been in the news this week. And uh, he spoke about his own role in it and said it was an error of judgment, which he deeply regretted. I do need to take a moment to talk about why RTE is making headlines now for the wrong reasons. I am one of those who failed to observe the necessary social distancing in RTE earlier this month. It was an error of judgment which I deeply regret and for which I take full responsibility. I apologise unreservedly and I am very sorry that I failed to do the right thing on this occasion. John Williams, where does this go from here, Sinead? Well, you have a number of strands now as to where it will go. There's also going to be a meeting of the Oireachtas Committee on uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Media and Culture, mm-hmm. which is due to meet this week. Neil Smith um, is the chair of that committee, and she said yesterday on the Clare Byrne Show again she she raised this issue of, of was it an impromptu gathering and said it is something that the committee will when they meet they will discuss as to whether it should go any further. And, and I expect that RTE executives may well be called in front of that committee to answer questions. And RTE pointing out that in the past it has always you know complied with with being asked to come in front of these committees so you have that so you could well see RTE people up in front of that committee you also have obviously that Gardaí initial investigation is continuing and then there's an internal health and safety review as well and then the RTE board saying that they're going to look at it so there's there's several I suppose inquiries several discussions going on as as to what happens next. Sinead Crowley arts and media correspondent thank you for that. Happy Thanksgiving with a difference this year in the United States. Today is the day Americans traditionally come together with family to feast and celebrate. Bigger than Christmas, millions are on the move in the days before to make it home for the Thanksgiving celebrations. And while this year has not seen the same level of people on the move, numbers taking to the air are the highest since the coronavirus hit. John Fitzpatrick is the owner of the New York Fitzpatrick Hotels, the Manhattan and the Grand Central. He's been telling me about New York this Thanksgiving. Well, Mary, um, as you know, it's early your time and it's nighttime my time. I, I walked home tonight from my hotel and um, it was just the streets were dead. Um, usually at Thanksgiving anyway, it's usually quite New Yorkers go out, you know, to their families or whatever. It's like Christmas Day here. But it would be, you know, replaced by tourists and people checking in and getting ready for Black Friday and everything. And it's just dead at the moment. So it is very quiet. I actually walked by the plaza uh, and it reminded me of uh, the movie uh, Home Alone because the only thing on was one light in the plaza tonight and everything else was dead. It's closed. So, look, it's a quiet one, you know, but we just hope, you know, that this vaccine comes soon. And we can change it. But at the moment, it's a very different Thanksgiving. It's hard to imagine such a vibrant city, uh, so quiet at the moment. Is it quiet, John, because New Yorkers have left the city to to join their families for Thanksgiving? Is it quiet because they're staying home? I know there are warnings from the governor, there's warnings from the mayor, uh, don't travel, don't get together in large numbers. So why do you sense you have this, uh, this, this quietness about the place at the moment? Well, it, you're right. It, most New Yorkers do leave New York and they go out to their house in the Hamptons or New Jersey, whatever it is, and they are they go they travel. And I just saw on the news tonight that it was on CNN that 
the airlines were just jammed at the moment, so they're not too happy about that because there seemed, I think people just got fed up of the lockdown type and um, just decided we're traveling for Thanksgiving. That's it. So I think we could be in trouble in a couple of weeks' time. We'll see. But it's mainly New Yorkers do leave, but that will be replaced by tourists flying in. You know, especially the Irish, this is the weekend that they'd be in coming in shopping and we'd have them all arriving in the hotels and they'd have three empty suitcases in one. And, you know, they'd all be getting up early then in the morning at 6 o'clock to get to the opening of Macy's or whatever it is to get the early shopping. And that's, I just left, you know, one of my hotels is open, the Grand Central, and, and, you know, it was very quiet. The only people that were there were the Aer Lingus crew who checked in tonight and basically that's it. So it's a very different... Um, it, Thanksgiving and at least the Thanksgiving parade I hear the Macy's parade is somewhat going on but not like it used to be so it will be very different You run two hotels in New York John you say the Grand Central is still open albeit with very small numbers and your other hotel the Manhattan that's closed is it? Yeah look look. when this pandemic hit in March we were said look will we close for a few months and we'll concentrate and just put everything into one hotel and the reason why I kept Grand Central open was because for two reasons. One, I had in the Aer Lingus crew and I didn't want to kick them out. But also, we have an outdoor space and we have it heated and it's there the whole time. So we said, look, we'll, you know, when the bars open again, we'll have that. So that's worked out very well for us. And our, our bar and our restaurant is busy. But, you know, we're getting warnings today from the mayor that indoor dining, which was only open about a month ago now, may be closed in two weeks again and it's back to outdoor. So it all depends on, on the next few weeks and how the numbers go. New York City itself, from the from the virus point of view, it's fairly under control, but it's the suburbs, Brooklyn, Queens, you know, their um, their numbers are rising. So we're just hoping we'll get through it. And um, but the good news, Mary, is we read today that the vaccine. Um, they're saying here in the states now that it should be out before. They're saying before the end of the year that 20 million people could have it across the United States. So, you know, that's hope at the end, you know. So people are are pinning their hopes on that at the moment. And I suppose from your point of view, uh, a vaccine comes along, uh, you'd hope it will enable you and and others in the the tourism business to, to be able to reopen and get back to doing what you do. Well, that's true, because in 2019, would you believe 66 million visitors arrived in New York and they spent $46 billion between hotels, restaurants, Broadway, and that's gone. There's nothing there at the moment. So we need the vaccine. Um, You know, one of the things is the virus is, I have to give credit to the governor, Como, he's brought the the, the virus under control, but the restriction of travel, for instance, if you're coming, even if you're coming from Connecticut down into New York, you still have to quarantine. You know, you get a vaccine 72 hours before you arrive, and you still have another three days quarantine. So nobody's going to come in for that to do two-day shopping. So we really, it's the vaccine we're relying on at this stage and try and control the numbers. But, you know, we do see light at the end of the tunnel, I think, with the new administration. Um, President-elect Biden will definitely, will look at this a different way and will get together with this, you know, with the health and safety. and, And I think he'll do a lot better job than the previous administration did. Hotelier John Fitzpatrick talking to me from New York a little earlier this morning. There's been a big drop in the prescribing and use of antibiotics here, down by 20% this year up to the end of October. Public health experts have been concerned for many years that increased use of antibiotics is leading to the growth of bacteria that are resistant to such drugs. Let's talk again to GP Dr Nuala O'Connor. She's also the Irish College of GPs lead advisor on COVID-19. Nuala, good morning again. Good morning. Um, Is this drop because essentially we're staying away from each other? Yes, I think that's a, that's a lot of it. The COVID-19 virus has reminded all of us just how dangerous an infection can be when we don't have a good drug to treat that infection. I mean, imagine if we had an effective drug to treat COVID-19, we wouldn't be where we are now. And unfortunately, uh, for many years now, we've had this rising problem of multi-drug-resistant bacteria or the superbugs. So I, I look on COVID-19 as a super virus. So we've seen how quickly the super virus can spread right around the world, doesn't respect any borders, and it's largely transmitted by, by 
um, the respiratory tract by coughing, sneezing and, and that. But we have all of these other um, superbugs. A lot of them transmit uh, through people's bowel or on their skin. And uh, right around the world, uh, we have patients in hospitals with bacterial infections from superbugs that we cannot treat. We do not have an antibiotic to treat them. So about 37,000 people in Europe die every year from these uh, superbugs and about 700,000 worldwide. So around this time every year, particularly heading into the winter, we always try to emphasize the importance of only using antibiotics when you really need them, so when you have a bacterial infection and not using them for viral infections. Obviously, COVID-19 is a viral infection. Would it be fair to say, though, that if life returns to normal, and we all hope it does, that will mean that antibiotic use will probably return to normal too? Well, yes, obviously that would be the danger, but we would hope that maybe people have learned every year. We know that the Irish public actually are very informed about antibiotics and about antibiotic resistance, so they do know that they shouldn't be used for colds and flus. They, generally speaking, they know that you should take the course as prescribed, that you shouldn't share antibiotics. So what we'd like to do is to maybe build on on that um, at the moment, because we now know you reinforce the message that when you have a viral infection, the most important thing to do is to take yourself out of circulation for a while. So when you get symptoms, you stay at home, you keep your child home from school. That stops the infection spreading to others. I would hope people will continue to be very careful about hand hygiene, coughing into their elbow, um, wearing their tissues. Hopefully we'll be able to get away from wearing the actual masks. But we learn the importance of how by all of our own personal actions, we can actually stop infection spreading. And if we stop infection spreading, okay. both viral and bacterial, we're going to reduce the need for uh, antibiotics. Well, let's t- uh, for moving from superbugs to uh, the super virus, for want of an awful phrase, um, movements on restrictions uh, expected this week. And on his way into a meeting of Cabinet this morning, the Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform, Michael McGrath, was asked about the government's plans for exiting the current Level 5 restrictions on December the 1st. December is uh, a crucial month for uh, large parts of our economy and we also have to uh, take into account that Christmas is a really important time for so many people across the country uh, who want to meet up with loved ones and we also have to have regard to the early part of next year uh, so that we are starting next year um, you know, on the best possible footing so there are a lot of considerations to take into account. Uh, I would like to see as much of the economy uh, open as possible provided it can be done uh, in a safe and a responsible way and it doesn't uh, compromise on duly the progress we have made on public health grounds. And that's Michael McGrath. Neil O'Connor, Irish uh, College of General Practitioners, lead advisor on COVID-19, is still with us. If pubs and restaurants reopen uh, within the next week or two and people spend more time in each other's company, and they're going to over the next few weeks, over the Christmas period, are we going to see a resurgence of cases in January? Well, I suppose it's inevitable, Gavin, that the more people mix together, the more likely that COVID is actually going to start to rise again, because we know that this virus loves when people get together. The important thing is that we do know how to get together in a safer manner. So it's about avoiding the three C's. Uh, What we've got to do is we've got to make sure that we avoid uh, crowded, poorly ventilated indoor spaces. So I do think it is possible for us to start to uh, interact with each other again, but in a safe manner. And at the end of the day, we've made huge strides. We only have to look at Europe to see how well that Ireland has done. And what's important is over the Christmas period that we all think very carefully about who are the people that we really want to spend time with and to spend time with them in as safe a manner as possible so we reduce resurgence of this virus and another uh, peak in January. Dr. Nuala O'Connor, thank you very much for speaking to us again. Nuala is the Irish College of GPs lead advisor on COVID. Uh, actually, we're staying in the UK. Uh, our next guest, Conor McGinn, is the Labour MP for St Helens North. Good morning to you, Conor McGinn. Good morning. Now, you're here to talk to us. You're going to be putting a parliamentary question in the House of Commons today. And this involves the Keane family and five simple words in Irish. 
in our Grigodil, in our hearts forever, uh, that they want to put on the headstone of their Irish-born mother, Margaret, the Keane being a family uh, of Irish extraction living in Coventry. Um, and this has all become, I mean, there's been an ecclesiastical court case, there have been rulings against them. Explain uh, to listeners briefly, if you wouldn't mind, Conor McGinn, how it's come to this, that you're raising this issue of what the Keane family want to put on their mother's headstone in the House of Commons today. Well, Margaret Keane and her family are well-known figures in the Irish community, and particularly the GAA in and around the West Midlands. And when she passed away a couple of years ago, the family wanted to recognise her Irish heritage by having this inscription on a headstone in the graveyard of their local church. But the Church of England uh, court their judge that they couldn't have that because to have those simple words, as you say, was a a judge to be political and give rise to controversy, which was completely inconceivable in itself how that decision could have been reached. But it was then exacerbated because having made the original mistake, it then entered the King family into this process of arbitration and courts and appeals. And it's funny, there's been a lot of focus on the influence of the church in Ireland and on politics there. But here we have an established church. We have bishops who sit in our legislature and these courts are the equivalent to civil courts. So two and a half years on, the King family are still in this appeals process uh, and they have a date for the new year. But you imagine in our psyche how important it is to go to the graveyard, to visit friends and relatives. You know, I certainly be missing the ability to do that at home this Christmas because of coronavirus, but not having the chance to do that for two and a half years as the King family mm-hmm. have been unable to do is 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 terrible. And so what I've asked and what I'm asking today is that this is expedited and that the issue uh, of costs is looked at. But we have had some good news on that, I think, in the last week around the costs that the King family may have to pay that they will be reimbursed by the church. What's the reaction of the Keane family? I mean, it's, you know, all of these processes, there's a grief involved, you know, put, you know, putting up the gravestones and so on after, after you've lost a mother, after you've lost a loved one. So what's it been like for them uh, finding themselves, you know, in, in, in the middle of the, this row over in or gree goodio? I think it's, it's devastating for them. They just wanted to recognise their mother's Irishness and their mother had given so much to the community here in this country but was also very proud of her roots and to be embroiled in this because of the decision, a very arbitrary decision and a clear misunderstanding of this by a figure in the Church of England uh, has been has been appalling for them but they are they are very stoic and they are very determined and they have the support of the whole of the Irish community here in Britain as well, and I expect from people at home in Ireland uh, that they should be allowed to do this. It's funny because uh, lots of people will know that Spike Milligan, the famous comedian, when he died, had an Irish inscription on his grave, I told you I was ill. And the reason that that was inscribed in Irish was because the Church of England thought uh, that it would be inappropriate to have it in English, so they used the Irish language as as a way around Mm -hmm. it. what I think what I think is testament to them is the fact that in an unprecedented move, the Church of England have said that they will cover any costs that the family have to meet in terms of taking the appeal. Now that would lend itself, and these are sub say of course matters, but that would lend itself to think that they know that they've got this wrong. And to their credit, right at the highest levels of the Church of England, and I spoke to Lambeth Palace this week to the Archbishop of of Canterbury's team, they know that this has been damaging for them and they are very embarrassed by this. But sadly, it's in the court's process and the decision of this one person in the West Midlands has led to this whole disastrous sequence of events and the the situation for the Keane family that they're now in where they still don't have a headstone to visit this Christmas. Yes, and that's all. Indeed, that's a big part of the Christmas tradition, isn't it, for very many sure. families, the trip to the graveyard. Uh, more than £2,000 sterling, I think, the Keane family have paid out so far. It's important to point out as well, though, isn't it, Conor McGinn, uh, that the bishop, uh, the Church of Ireland bishop here, the Bishop of Cashelossery in France, uh, Michael Burroughs, he wrote an open letter to the Church of England Bishop of Coventry about this and pointing yes. out that, you know, the Irish language um, has a legitimate place in in British polity. Look, absolutely. And and the Church of England, as a corporate body and several of their senior clergy have 
recognise that too. And what it shows is that the decision, the very ill-judged decision of one person can have consequences that last and that do reputational damage to the institution. Uh, and, and, I, and I think what we'll see from this, hopefully, is some reform of the court's process in the Church of England and the appeals process and that we have more transparency around this. But what the Keane family have done through their pursuit of this uh, is shine a light on the fact that the Irish language and the Irish tradition is a hugely important part of Anglicanism, both in Ireland and here in England. And I would hope that we might have the chance to explore that uh, when the court case is finally settled, hopefully with the right outcome. And that actually from this, we might have some healing and some recognition and some reconciliation, not just for the Keane family, but in a wider sense, I suppose, between the Gaelic tradition and the Anglican tradition, not just in Ireland, but here in England. And I think that would be a very fitting tribute to Margaret Keane for the fantastic work and contribution that her and her family made here in Britain as a very proud Irish woman and a very proud Gael. Conor McGinn, Labour MP for St Helens North. Tom Widza on Vuyach Díaz Gudjo of Eichhainslinger Mountain. Thank you very much indeed. Over 5,000 people have signed a petition criticising a second-level school in County Carlow for telling female students not to wear tight clothing. Dozens of parents of students attending the Presentation College in Carlow have expressed their anger on social media following reports that female students were told not to wear leggings or tight tracksuit bottoms. Let's speak now to the school's principal, Ray Murray. Good morning. Good morning, Rachel. You find yourself all over the newspapers this morning and all over social media. Um, The school we know did hold a series of assemblies last Friday. What was said to pupils about wearing leggings or tight clothing? Uh, Basically, the assemblies last Friday, if I just give you a little bit of background to it, all right, in the sense of our... Our uniform regulations, P uniform regulations, school uniform, have not changed at all, despite stuff that has been said on social media and elsewhere. Um, the only change is, I suppose, that because of COVID-19 regulations, when students have a PE class, they're coming to school in their PE gear, rather than changing in and out of it, as they would have done normally when we had access to changing rooms. And what would have been noticed by staff and myself and others over the last month and a half or so is that on PE day when the students were coming in, particularly the girls, it was the uniform regulations weren't be followed and it was becoming more of a fashion show, if you like, more than anything else. Now, we have worked tremendously hard in the school here over the years to have things right. We are hugely oversubscribed from one year to the next and it comes down to not just teaching and learning and the pastoral care of students, but it comes down to the small, the small things as well too and make sure that everything is right. So there was a discussion with myself, deputy principals and the deans of discipline in terms of how best to address it. And it was felt the simplest way was just to talk to the girls in a sense, go through a reminder of what the full school uniform regulations are. And in terms of where this issue seems to have risen, to be honest with you, we're bemused in one sense, we're annoyed in another sense in terms of some of the comments that have been up on social media, which are scandalous in a sense and and damaging to staff as well there too, that primarily what was a normal enough assembly in terms of reminding about uniform regulations has escalated into this. Mm, But did you single out the girls to tell them about regulations or were boys spoken to as well? uh, No, the boys weren't spoken to because as I mentioned at the start there, the issue primarily was with the girls in the sense of for and I know girls are, are, teen, are you know, teenagers or whatever, they were looking at, it was becoming a fashion show. So the PE uniform was not being worn properly, more and more so by them, in ter- particularly in terms of, instead of tracksuit bottoms, there was a variety of uh, garments being more, uh, more so leggings. It was not an issue with the boys, and it was just a discussion with the girls. And I mean, Okay, do, if, do you accept maybe that in hindsight, though, it might have been better if you'd have spoken to the boys as well? Um, not necessarily, to be honest with you, in a sense, we're restricted here in terms of space, in terms of meeting uh, with students as well there too. And to to have that conversation, maybe uh, highlighting maybe the incorrect wearing of the tracksuit bottoms and people are wearing leggings, to be doing that in front of a class of girls and boys who didn't want to be embarrassing anybody either, be it girls or boys on it. And okay. the issue is primarily with girls. So... 
Uh, and I mean, again, as I say, if you go back and look at our code of behaviour, and it's in the Students' Journal from the start of the year, it's the same as it was last year, nothing new has been said. And for some reason, from some of those assemblies, uh, this notion, idea came that uh, girls can't wear leggings because... Right. Can, can I can I ask you about that. that then? Because yeah. this this is key to the controversy. Was yeah. any remark made about teachers feeling uncomfortable with the sight of girls in tight clothes? No. The first I've heard of this was on late on Friday. We would have a half day on Friday, and a teacher came to me that some six year girls were a bit uncomfortable, a little upset after uh, assembly. So I went and spoke with the dean and I said, look, was there anything mentioned about staff being uncomfortable or anybody being uncomfortable in terms of what the students were wearing? And the dean would have told me, she said, no, nothing like that was said. So the only thing that was mentioned there was just telling the, the students, make sure you have proper uniform on you so that it doesn't lead to any uncomfortable conversations in relation to your uniform. Right. And are so you then 100% confident that nothing like that was said? Nothing that could have been construed in that way? Not even an off-the-cuff remark? The, the, we had the deans of this, and we had uh, five deans of this, and we had six-year groups. One dean was doing two-year groups. We have uh, female deans of discipline who are mothers themselves, many of them have daughters, who were talking to girls, and I know there was nothing inappropriate, uh, wrong, uncomfortable that was said to them. When and I, I, I do accept that there were some students who were upset or I'm upset, I think, maybe after some of the assemblies. I would have met with several of them. I met with about 15 of them, I think, on Monday and met with them individually or in groups of twos or threes. And I said, look, tell me what you're upset about. Most of them were telling me what they had heard was said in another assembly. And I said, look, don't tell me what was said in the other assembly. Tell me what was said in your assembly and what were you upset about? So, and I took notes and uh, asked them what, what they had heard or what they had understood to be said. I went back to the individual deans. All right, I checked with them. I've asked uh, the deans, a couple of deans, to meet again with those girls who wanted to meet with them uh, yesterday, that was, I think, uh, and uh, they clarified the issues for them. Right. And some of the girls would have come to me and said, sir, can we not wear tracksuit bottoms? Now? However, I said, that is nothing that's changed there. All right? the, you can wear tracksuit bottoms. There is no issue on it. Nobody has made a complaint to me in terms of staff being uncomfortable, male staff or anything else. And uh, to be honest, and, and I know, Rachel, you're just reporting on the story that's there. And when we were contacted by local media in relation to this, we were curious as to what is this a story about? Okay, can I just put to you then... Sorry, yeah, just go, briefly, just if you would. Bit, all right, just very quickly. Um, uh, these assemblies happened on Friday. The first I heard of it was close to lunchtime on Friday, okay? And... Uh, uh, there was supposed to be some students that had come up to see me, but they weren't at my office. I didn't see them. I checked with the dean at that stage, and I've given you what she told me. Over the weekend, this lost, this broke up into what it did on social media. All right, and uh, petitions set up uh, based on unsubstantiated facts. I rang all of the deans of discipline on Friday, on Saturday, to check and said, "Are you sure you didn't say something?" that could be misconstrued or said wrong or whatever, and they assured me right. no. So, so you're, you, you as, as you've said to us already, you're 100% confident that, that that wasn't the case. And yet you have a situation now where girls, I'm looking at some of the reports in the papers this morning, report feeling degraded, violated and unsafe. I mean, you must be concerned about that. Of, of, course, we're con- of, of course we're concerned about that. And that's why I would have spoken with any girls, any students or boys who would have uh, wanted to meet with me yesterday, and I explained where the 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 assemblies were coming from. They all understood it. They all knew what it was about. And if a wrong message came through there from some of the assemblies or hearing it, you know, obviously we don't want that to happen. All right, and that's why mm-hmm. I have an open door policy here in terms of talking to the kids. I mean, I just give you a, a small snapshot on this, if you like, and I know you're caught for time there, Rachel. Probably right. On Saturday afternoon, I had an email from uh, a fifth year. Uh, mother of of a girl who was upset by what she had heard. I sent that email to the fifth year dean of discipline and I said, look, this is the email that's there. Can you tell me or can you respond to this? The fifth year dean responded to me with her email, which I forwarded on to the mother of the fifth year girl. The mother of the fifth year girl came back to me half an hour later and said, look, I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry for jumping the gun and and going on what I've heard and what other people would have told me. That's That's not to say that there was one or two girls maybe from that who, from the assemblies, who 
got a, a different message somewhere or other from it or heard from oh, something right. else. And, 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 and I, obviously we're concerned for them. Yeah, but we don't I, want anybody to be upset. Can I ask you just finally, in that regard, will you be doing anything special in the school today? Like, will you be having another assembly? No, I mean, what, what we have said on the statement on the website, I would have rang several of our parents on Monday and explained it to them. And they know what our school is like, all right? Our school is probably the most popular school locally at the moment. And as I said, people are not going to be coming to our school if we have an ethos of body-shaming girls, which was a disgraceful headline to be in a local newspaper. The girls are not going to be coming to our school if that's the ethos that's around the place. Girls are not going to be coming to our school if they feel staff are looking at them, no matter how they're dressed, or boys. And to be honest with you, you know, I I feel for our staff here who have uh, taken the brunt of of unsubstantiated rumour and slanderous stuff that's up on social media, and it's it's a disgrace really listen we'll we'll let you fight that one out with the local media but thank you very much indeed for taking our call this morning that was Ray Murray there he's the principal of the Presentation College in Carlow And we're going next to the Canary Islands, where there's an increasing number of people from African countries arriving to seek asylum. We can talk to Tenerife-based journalist Cleana O'Flynn. Cleana, good to talk to you again. These desperate people, they always come. But has the virus, has COVID-19 increased the challenges for all involved? It is a factor in both the point of departure and the point of arrival, Audrey. And sadly, as I woke up this morning to get ready to do this interview, I read that four more immigrants died just off Lanzarote last night. There are three people missing, women and children, as uh, two boats, two of these boats that I have previously described as as, as the size of, of a curragh almost, crossing the Atlantic Ocean um, as they tried to, to arrive into Lanzarote last night. So that's another... 30 people arrived, uh, four dead, three missing, and that will bring the total possibly to 19,000 who have arrived over to the Canary Islands this year from the west coast of Africa, many coming from different countries to a a departure point. Uh, And as you mentioned, COVID-19, some of them would have previously been employed in tourism over there, in other regular and irregular economic activities, but COVID-19 has affected so many countries, their employment has dried up, and they now see um, a possible chance to travel to the Canary Islands and from here over to Europe, which is their hope, as an option. Um, Given that we are hearing the price per person per journey has dropped radically from about 2,000 to under 1,000. So it's half the price now of it for, for a journey. We are seeing more and more people trying to make that journey. And it is like about five or six times greater than last year, for instance. There were 2,600 arrived last year and so far this year nearly 19,000. It's such a perilous journey. And the Spanish government, do they want to, they're in talks with the Senegalese government for one. Is that with a view to ending this or to making these journeys, try and find a way to make the journey safer? More the latter is the aspiration. This has become a political crisis, which is so often the case when you have you know, every human tragedy is a story as a human person who has either died or has almost died trying to get her, but it has become a political football now, Audrey. Uh, what has happened is, yes, the Spanish government uh, and the European Union have donated funds to to Morocco and to other countries along the West Coast to try and get them to reform the practices, to increase employment opportunities, to launch PR campaigns, to persuade people not to make the journey. Um, there is a sense that at point of departure, departure, a lot of the time the authorities are turning a blind eye, they're letting people go off. There are a thousand people per week, we hear, lining up to get on any number of these boats making this perilous journey. And then at the same time, you have the Canary Islands now, which are small, geographic, small islands. They can't hold these number of people who are in tent cities at the moment in some of the uh, military zones across the islands. They want to send some of these migrants up to the mainland, to the Spanish mainland, just to kind of alleviate the pressure. The Spanish central government won't allow that to happen because they say if that happens, it will just encourage the people smugglers to send more people over because the aspiration is to get to mainland Europe. And Spain also wants the European Union to get involved 
to help them in their persuasion tactics. And then, of course, you have the far-right party here, Vox, which is a, a growingly popular far-right party in Spain, now calling for the Spanish Armada to block 100% the arrival of these migrants. But so far, boats that have left the coast and are seen to be in danger by the Spanish Armada as they arrive into the Canary Islands are only helped to land. And you mentioned there the EU and Morocco, Cleon, and we, we know mm. that hundreds of millions of euro uh, were paid by the EU to Morocco was part of the policy to, to stop these um, people making this journey in the first place. But uh, what has the Moroccan government done with that money? We do, I mean, we believe that they, they put it into some reform programmes. Um, and I mean, there has been visits to the Sahara to Morocco by different members of the Spanish government. There are about five Spanish departments. You've got migration, the interior, defence, territorial policy, visiting the west coast of African countries uh, this week and last week to try and encourage them to spend the money more wisely. But there is a feeling, uh, and I, I dare not be racist as I say this, but that the money has not been used as it should have been um, to, to, to kind of really reinforce the programmes that are encouraging. It's not simply a matter of blocking these people from leaving, it's encouraging them to stay uh, because um, in, these are financial migrants. These are not war migrants or war refugees. These are economic refugees. And they are, to use that phrase, in search of a better life. And there is a real feeling that the money has not been properly used at the moment. OK, Cleano, for now, we leave it there. Thank you very much, Cleano Flynn, joining us live from Tenerife this morning. Now, they've been celebrating Thanksgiving in the US and President Trump in his first news conference uh, taking questions and answers from reporters since the election was called against him has said he would leave the White House but only if the Electoral College votes for President-elect Biden. Uh, it wasn't his most cheerful appearance as you'll hear in this clip now. Just, just to be clear, if the Electoral College votes for Joe Biden, will you concede? Well, if they do, they made a mistake because this election was a fraud. Just so you understand, this election was a fraud. I mean, they have Biden beating Obama on Obama's vote in areas that mattered in terms of the election, in swing states. And yet he's losing to Obama all over the place. But he's beating Obama in swing states, which are the states that mattered for purposes of the election. So, no, I can't say that at all. I think it's a it's a possibility. They're trying to look between you people. Don't answer, don't talk to me that way. You're just a you're just a lightweight. Don't talk to me that way. Don't talk to I'm the president of the United States. Don't ever talk to the president that way. Fine, I'm going to go with another question. Go ahead. So if, if the electoral college does elect President-elect Joe Biden, are you not going to leave this building? Just so you uh, certainly I will. Certainly I will. And you know that. Daniel Lippmann is White House reporter with Politico. Uh, what did you make of that Thanksgiving news conference? Was there a kind of concession there? Yeah, that's the only concession that he will likely give since he wants to potentially run again in 2024. Um, but he wants his supporters to uh, kind of know that his view is that it was a, a fraudulent election and that Joe Biden didn't really win even if, uh, you know, President-elect Biden takes office on January 20th, which is a virtual certainty. Um, you know, Trump wants to continue to beat his drum that uh, this was stolen from him when there's no evidence that uh, there was massive fraud. And the president is going back on the campaign trail, isn't he? He says he's going to campaign in the Georgia Senate race this weekend. That, of course, is going to be uh, critical, isn't it, to the freedom of manoeuvre Joe Biden may have as president? Correct. And so Democrats are facing a, a very uphill battle uh, in terms of trying to win those two Senate seats to get, uh, you know, control of the Senate. Um, and Georgia is still a very red state. And so it's, it's going to be pretty hard. Uh, and, you know, Joe, Joe Biden won Georgia. Uh, and so one reason that Trump advisors uh, urged him to go is to kind of try to uh, win those seats and then it would be a psychological mm -hmm. victory for Trump. Uh, and he could say, well, uh, you know, the Georgia result was stolen from me, given that, uh, you know, they're, they're going to elect these two Republican senators back. And all of this is against a backdrop of uh, the COVID numbers uh, skyrocketing in the United States. Hospitals in some parts of the country uh, saying they're close to the point where they'd have to ration care. And 
The omen's not good given the flight patterns that we saw through American airports uh, for Thanksgiving. Yeah, many Americans ignored the CDC guidelines not to travel for Thanksgiving. Uh, you know, they wanted to see their families. They wanted to uh, have some semblance of normality. Uh, although I'm, I'm sure that there, you know, people didn't always have huge Thanksgiving dinners, uh, you know, at one table. And so people are continuing to be vigilant. Uh, but you're right that, you know, Americans are very individualistic people they are not, they're going to just do what they want uh, they're not they don't like being told what to do even if uh, it's to protect their safety mm-hmm. and it wasn't just the turkey getting a pardon from president trump yesterday also uh, former general uh, mike flynn uh, also getting a pardon from president trump do you suspect that this will be first of many contravention controversial pardons from president trump in his final weeks in office I think that's uh, you know definitely a high likelihood. Uh, we're looking at people like his 2016 deputy campaign manager uh, Rick Gates, George Papadopoulos, who was uh, a foreign policy aide on the 2016 campaign. They were both convicted of various charges, uh, and others who he deems fit. Uh, you know, Jared Kushner has pushed the uh, you know his son-in-law has pushed uh, a you know criminal justice reform, and so uh, it might it's not going to just be political allies. I'm sure it'll be um, you know African Americans and others who uh, had low-level offenses uh, that you know commutations that they can just kind of wipe clean. Um, but uh, we're expecting that kind of a wave of pardons, maybe you know drip, 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 not just one fell swoop. Daniel Lippmann, White House reporter with Political. Thank you very much indeed for speaking to us in Morning Ireland. The tension is building, the excitement is palpable. Tonight is the night when families around the country and abroad will gather in front of the television to watch this year's Late Late Toy Show. It promises to be a jam-packed three-hour festive extravaganza that will lift the hearts and minds of the nation in this most extraordinary year. Eli Sheehy has this report. Snow is falling. This is the whole essence of the programme. Old people, like me, and older again, like parents, will be allowed to be young again. It's almost like a free pass to kindness and innocence for three hours on a cold Friday night in November in the middle of a pandemic. Who wouldn't want to climb into that snow globe and escape? Ryan Tuberty inviting people, young and old, to join him for a fun-filled, magical, late-late toy show tonight. Viewers here in Ireland and across the globe won't be left disappointed. The show will feature two musical performances from Ryan and children from around the world, accompanied by a very special guest singer, will join together for a special one-off performance. The theme this year is Roald Dahl and the wonderful world of Roald Dahl. And he kind of understood a lot of things about children and childhood. And that is very often that childhood is not always easy. So it's a perfect fit for us this year because it hasn't been easy for children. So what children can expect is all the colour and all the sparkle and all the joy and all the fun and all the excitement. With just 12 hours to go, it's hard to contain the excitement. These children in Drogheda have been outlining their plans for tonight. I like when the kids show the toys. Everyone in school has been saying that they're looking forward to it. I finish up my dinner, get into my jammies and start watching it with my mummy, my brother, my dog and my daddy. What do you want to see on the toy show? Tractors, trucks, cars, football. I'd love to be on the toy show. I like that now they'll be videoing people. Like maybe they might have their mom and dad on it and maybe their dog. I'll be putting a Christmas jumper on my dog for the toy show. We're going to have matching pyjamas with my mom and my sister and we're going to eat treats and see what toy we like. I'm hoping to see our generation doll and LED lights. I've written my letter to Santa, but I haven't sent it. So if I see a toy at the toy show that I like, I could add it to my list and then send my letter. I love Ryan Tuberty's Christmas jumpers. Uh, The Christmas jumpers, they're appalling. The number of jumpers will range from three to four. Maybe throw in a shirt. (laughs) 
That's what a fox is made for. The Then there's the actual Fantastic Mr. Fox outfit itself, which involves plenty of whiskers and indeed a tail. There's another big song and dance number in the show that we never, we've never done before, a second one. And that involves another costume change entirely, which brings us back to another magical era from Hollywood. Last year, Irish people from over 100 countries tuned in to watch the toy show. It has become a bit of a tradition for Limerick native Lisa Neville, who will be tuning in with her husband Dara and their children, Gerard, Mara and Darcy, from their home in New York. We're here in Yonkers in New York. It kind of keeps you close to home really when you watch the toy show, especially being gone now nearly 10 years. Every year, my friend back home in Newcastle West, she sends over the late, late toy show pyjamas for the kids and we put them on like when we're watching the toy show and we have popcorn and they have juice boxes and stuff. Jared, what would you hope to see on the toy show? Uh, dinosaurs and sea creatures. Jingle bells, jingle bells, yeah, on the way, on the snow. <laughs> Happy Christmas, everyone. I don't want a lot for Christmas. There is just one thing I need. I don't care about the presents underneath the Christmas tree. I just want you for my own. My wish come true. All I want for Christmas is you. And that lovely preview of what's in store tonight on the Late Late Toy Show after the nine o'clock news from Ailish Sheehy. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.